This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Debate, uh, Nations and Nationalism Debate. And today we have, um, uh, today we are debating this book, Understanding National Identity, by Dave McClellan and Frank uh, Beckhofer with John Fox and other authors. And the, it is fair to say that the Understanding National Identity is the culmination of many years of research into national identity carried out by David and Frank. Anyone with interest in, in national identity or nationalisms and constitution change in, on, this, on these islands cannot fail to notice that the contribution they've been making over the years. Their work on the cultural elite in freedom revolutionary Scotland, the, the work on the backpack uh, upon three, a, to, a town sitting on the Scottish-English border, the Liverpool Trust funded two programmes on nationalism, national identity and constitution change. All these works must have been registered with those people who are interested in, in the question of national identity and nationalism on these islands. And then understanding national identity brings all these together to question what national identity is, national identity per se, as element. And as Macron and um, Beckhofer claims that as a one of the elements which is rather neglected in the study of the holy trinity of nations, nationalism, and national identity. At the same time, their research into national identity gathered pace in the 1990s and it has, covered, it has covered a period of rapid constitutional change in the UK. So it is no wonder that the introduction starts with a disclaimer that book is not about constitutional change as such, but about national identity. The fact that the, the book on national identity starts with such a disclaimer says a lot about our, why our kind of unconsciously held assumption about the relationship between national identity, identity and political behavior, especially national identity and political behavior. And this is a question that this comprehensive study tackles. So what is national identity and how can we study it? And why do we tend to assume that there is a natural link between national identity and political behavior? These are two key aspects we would like to focus upon today. And today's proceedings is as follows. First, John Fox addresses the question, quest, uh, addresses the questions, what is national identity and how, we, how can we study it? And provides his observations of the book from a very sociological point of view. And then Asaoki comments on the relationship between identity and political behavior and perhaps somewhat provocatively given a stern disclaimer in the introduction why the discussion of national identity is almost always automatically 
link to the, to the issue of constitutional change. Each speaker has up to 12 minutes to present their case. After two sets of <laughs> I'll be very smart, <laughs> 12 minutes. And uh, after these um, two sets of comments, I will invite David and Sam to, to respond to these, these comments. And then perhaps we'll, after that, we'll, I will ask Sam and John to respond to the response. And then we open the floor to the question and hope that there will be enough time to discuss this into really interesting book. So uh, our first speaker today is John Fox. John Fox is Senior Lecturer in Sociology University, University of Bristol and among other things a member of the editorial team of Nations <coughs> and Nationalism. John's main area of research uh, in nationalism, ethnicity, racism, and migration. With each topic, he's interested in, in the ways in which ordinary people re reproduce ethnic, national, and racialized forms of collective belonging in their everyday lives, whilst uh, appreciating the important role, role politics, culture, and economy play in shaping social identities. John's research pays special attention to the ways such identities are also are also the practical accomplishments of ordinary people engaging in routine activities. His research to date has examined these issues and the questions of nationalism and migration in Hungary, Romania, and the UK. So, say what? Can I suggest you might be best to use the microphone? Yeah, it, it, it's definitely good. Right, good. Thank you, Asuko, for inviting me. Can everyone hear me? Um, good. So yes, this is a difficult task because uh, I'd really like to talk about the elections. Uh, <laughs> um, so can I just make a request that the next book be Understanding American Nationalism? <laughs> There's much to be understood here. But it's difficult in other respects as well because you just didn't give me a lot to work with here. I mean, it's a very, very rich book. It's hard uh, to kind of find ways to pick holes in it, which is kind of what our task is, right? So we're social scientists, we think we want to critically interrogate things, to make sense of things, to interpret things, make, make better understand the world around us and the things that we read, the things that we engage with, uh, explore the limitations of our knowledge, the biases that inform our research and whatnot. Um, but your book doesn't really uh, help us so much in, in um, revealing its fault. So, so it makes my task uh, somewhat harder. This is a book that, uh, uh, like, is, is, is you know, uh, uh, in research on national identity, I think this is, this is uh, a book that has uh, had much to say empirically and theoretically. Um, we get depth in it, we get breadth in it, and we get depth and breadth that extend well beyond the 200 pages and back into the literally decades, decades of work that, uh, that Frank and, and David have done in questions of national identity. So what's left for me to do then, right? Uh, um, well, one option is to uh, sit back down and be done. Um, uh, uh, but uh, of course, we are too self-serving as sociologists to do that kind of thing. So I'm not going to take my seat. Um, but what I will do instead is, instead of trying to find fault with a book, I want to try to think about ways in which we can um, extend the insights of the book uh, beyond what was offered um, in the book itself. 
So not to really challenge or criticize its findings in any significant way, but to rather show how it delivers more than it says on the tin, right? It says it's going to do this, and I think it actually does more than that. So, and what I want to pick up on here is one key contribution of the book in terms of its conceptualization of national identity, what the book is about. And, and David and Frank define identity as not something so much that people have, more as something that people do. And they're right. Identity is the practical accomplishment of ordinary people doing ordinary things. And the, great, the advantage of this kind of practice-based understanding of identity is it allows them, it opens, it opens up the book, up, opens up the research to empirical investigation, right? If it's something that people are doing, if there's a practical dimension of this, then we can get our hands around it, we can empirically analyze that, and this is, of course, what they do in their book. But, although they don't say it, I think their book actually does more. I think what it also does is that it gives us some very important and very novel insights, in fact, into what those identities are doing in their down times, right? So if, if identity is a practical accomplishment, it's a, if it's a practice-based thing that's context-specific, then surely there are contexts when identity is not being done, right? As they, they say as much in the book. So what happens when it's not being done? Does it just disappear completely and then reappear at some other time? Well, they don't address this issue, but I think, um, I think, I think this is a question of identity not simply as doing, but also identity as being. So identity as being uh, in those in-between in times of doing, as, uh, in those down times of doing. So uh, David and Frank are a bit standoffish about this kind of identity. They suggest that this sort of conceptualization of, it, of identity relegates identity to those dark crevasses of the human consciousness or human subconsciousness. And, then, and, and because of that, it makes it more inaccessible and more unknowable to empirical investigation. But, they, <clears throat> um, uh, but what I would like to argue here is that they actually show us both versions of these identities, right? So identity as doing, which is the main focus of their book, but also identity as being, in between the times when it's being done. So what I'd like to do then in this brief intervention here is explore two ways in the book that we can interpret the evidence that they provide, not only as identity as doing, I don't take issue with that, I think they do that very well, but also as identity as being. So we get more than we pay for, basically. So the first thing, the first example, or the first type of, of uh, example I want to talk about is when we're given a glimpse into some of these more taken-for-granted versions of identity in contexts when those identities get challenged in some way. And there's really a fabulous example of this in chapter five uh, with uh, an interview that you have with a Scottish man who describes his experience of meeting another, I use this in inverted commas, Scottish man who wore kilts and did Scottish things but looked Chinese, right? So here's a Scottish man, he encounters another man doing being Scottish, right? So wearing the kilts, doing the dances, doing whatever, and claiming a Scottish identity, but to this other Scottish man, he looks Chinese. So in this case, the interviewee had never thought that being Scottish meant that you had to be white, right? He didn't think about those sorts of terms until he encounters this anomaly. So this Chinese-looking man who self-identifies as Scottish, but the interviewee thinks to himself when he sees them, 
And this again is in quotes, oh no, you're not, right? So he's, that's the thought that's in his head when this, when this man self-identifies as Scottish. He thinks, no, you're not that. Which makes him realize that there are chromatic limits of Scottishness in a way that he had not thought of before in a self-conscious way. And this is really a good example of what Harold Garfinkel, the ethnometrologist, would refer to a breach, refer to as a breach. So when our unspoken and taken for granted background expectancies about how the world works are challenged in some way. So this requires us to make explicit that which would otherwise remain implicit. But um, so this Scottish man's racialized understandings of Scottishness remained implicit for him most of his life, and this, this was his Scottish identity as being, but when he was confronted with a person claiming a Scottish identity who didn't fit the implicit bill of what Scottishness should look like, well then the implicit becomes explicit in the discursive repair work that is done to restore the status quo ante. And it's that repair work that gives us this brief glimpse into the otherwise netherworld of the taken-for-granted assumptions about national identity. So he doesn't have to express this until it's challenged in some way. And there are a number of other examples in the, in the book, not perhaps quite as striking as this one, but other examples that, that show that our assumptions about who we are remain implicit until they're challenged in some way, and it's at that moment that the implicit becomes Explicit, and I would suggest that that implicit is identity as being. The second way that David and Frank uh, shed light on identity as being, as opposed to identity as doing, is through their survey research. Again, not by design, so not intentionally. <clears throat> Excuse me. To the contrary, they focused uh, in their uh, interpretation of the data on the more self-conscious dimensions of identity that emerged in, their, uh, in, in those data. Things like ranking identities, multiple identities, the scope, the content, the strength of different identities, those sorts of things. That's what the surveys were getting at. It wasn't perhaps exactly doing national identity, but it was still presented as something that was purposeful and thoughtful. But I'd like to say, and again, I don't take issue with that. I think, that I, I think that's a valid analysis of the data. But I'd like to suggest that those same data can also be analyzed or interpreted in other ways that shed light more on identity as being, as capturing some of those less accessible and less knowable versions of national identity. And I think there are three ways in which this occurs in their survey data. The first is that surveys do not typically generate thoughtful, elaborate reflections of responses. That's what we get in interview data or qualitative data, right? We get people to elaborate, to explore their different uh, ideas about these things. Surveys give us quick, snap judgments, often you know, from a finite universe of fixed choices. They give us quasi-automatic, reflex-like responses to questions very often without much critical reflection. Go through the form, you check the boxes, you think of for a second on one, but then just go to the next one. You just know the answers, right? The census, you give the, you have a, you're presented with the census. We might, if we think about it, we can, we can have problems with the census, but we typically don't think about it. We just answer the question as it's presented to us. So the question that confronts the survey takers bear little resemblance to the way identity questions arise in everyday life yet the answers that they give are still meaningful. So because, and that's because the answers are not premeditated, or because the answers are not premeditated, they give us some insight into national identity, not as something done purposefully or, 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 or practically, but rather as simply who we are. 
The second and related way that the data generated through uh, uh, surveys gives us insight into identity as being is that they are decontextualized. So surveys are not part, of course, of everyday interaction, but they replace every intera everyday interaction with a new set of rules, a new and temporary grammar of interaction, a contrived setting of the survey being taken. So surveys ask us to do things that we don't normally do in a contrived, that, that we don't normally do in our ordinary lives. And in doing so, what they do is they decouple the content of the nation from the context of the nation. And because people have a practical capacity for answering these questions, the data show that that content matters even when the context isn't there, the context in which it should matter isn't there. So this is national identity in that downtime that I was talking about, resting, waiting for the next interactional moment when it's going to matter. That's the otherwise unselfconscious, taken-for-granted version of national identity, national identity as being. The third way uh, is that survey data are also depersonalized, right? So, again, thinking of interviews, when we look at interview data, the detail from interviews comes from in-depth exploration of single questions. But the detail from surveys is gleaned from all the questions posed to an entire sample. So survey results matter in the aggregate. They thus detach the data, in a sense, from the individual and place it out there in the ether, as it were, a sort of disembodied national identity that floats around and is available to all of us, but only invoked in certain contexts. So that, too, is a national identity not as doing, but rather as simply being. So what I've been trying to say here is that in these and probably other ways as well, what we, can, we, can, we can revisit the data that are produced and published in the book by David and Frank and see how it might afford us a glimpse into this otherwise unseen world of national identity as simply being. And in doing so, I'm not trying to take, take issue with the interpretations that they've, that they've given here. I, I, I'm, I think the interpret, interpretations that they've given are valid. But I said, as I said at the outset, I think they're simply doing more than that. They didn't tell you that we were going to get this, but I actually think we are getting this. And I think this is also very important, because what we're talking about here is really Michael Billig's banal nationalism, right? That sort of unselfconscious nationalism or national identity that operates underneath the radar, impervious to critical engagement or reflection, silently and perhaps invidiously concocting a world of nations without us taking note of it, even without us being allowed to take note of it, be able to be able to take note of it. Well, Billet provides us a very interesting theory about how that less knowable and less accessible version of na national identity exists, but he doesn't tell us how we can access it or how we can actually understand it in the supposed carriers of those national identities, that is, ordinary people in their everyday lives. He just tells us it's there. Well, whether they wanted to or not, David and Frank have given us some access to that otherwise inaccessible and otherwise unknowable uh, um, version of national identity as being. So, thank you and well done. Okay, uh, our next speaker is uh, Asa Oki. Um, Asa is, I was told, just taught emeritus professor of politics at the University of Ulster and senior fellow at Center for British Politics at the University of Howe. His main research interests are conservative politics, Northern Ireland, and the changing character of the United Kingdom. 
The dominant theme of research has been to engage with issues of contemporary, contemporary politics within suggest, suggestive conce, conceptual frameworks. Previously, for example, the politics of Englishness has been considered in terms of, of a conversation, the British question in terms of non-instrumentalism, and Northern Ireland in terms of equal citizenship. Currently, the project is to, is to revise our understanding of politics of Northern Ireland in terms of, of elective affinity, which is going to be the key concept in your uh, interface. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the, uh, the invitation. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. The last time I was here, I was in the audience at um, a session involving Christian Kumar, which is one of the highlights, I think, of my academic experience, a very brilliant uh, event. And uh, I, I would uh, simply second the, the remarks and then not repeat them of, uh, of John about the, the book, um, because it was only afterwards I realised it was supposed to be a debate. Um, I actually came here to celebrate <laughs> rather than to, to debate. And the, the reason for that is that I've sort of used um, the work of David and David and Frank as a sort of line to guide me in my blindness as I, as I walk through these uh, very complex issues. And it's even more appropriate uh, tonight, that analogy, because uh, my glasses just disintegrated because I didn't go to, to Boots. <laughs> but, so it's really not so much the one-eyed man as king, but I hope I can make uh, some sense. Uh, <laughs> um, in fact, I'll just abandon that. Um, I, as you know, identity is a, a very big thing in, in Northern Ireland, and our graduate students are very keen to research it, and that's why I always make them, make sure, make sure that they, they read Beckhoffer and McCroom's uh, article in uh, Scottish Affairs stating the obvious ten truths about national identity, because it's the perfect uh, antidote to our local form of um, self-evidence, which is, if anybody who's been in Belfast they will come across this phrase, it is, why he asked me that question? Sure, the dogs in the street? No. But the truth of the matter, I think, is that more often than not, those dogs are barking up the wrong tree. So one of the motifs of uh, understanding national identity <clears throat> is that social science evidence um, often proves these obvious truths, even canine ones, to be incorrect or in inaccurate. And I think that's because uh, people generally, and myself included, and perhaps yourself, aren't very historically minded when it comes to notions of uh, national identity or even personal identity. And perhaps we uh, all suffer from what might be called the um, Marche Chevalier syndrome, if you remember that famous duet with Hermione Gingold in the musical Gigi, he remembers everything so well to get it wrong. So remembering things to get them wrong in this case isn't so much um, being self-consciously fabricating or any deliberate fabrication. I think it is that uh, we remember our past or we understand who we are selectively. That sort of selective narrative. And Beckhofer and Macron in this book um, demonstrate how what they discuss as getting at national identity involves those narratives at work. And they illustrate, indeed, how those narratives function, and they do it in uh, a very insightful way. Now, um, understanding uh, national identity sort of begins with um, that wonderful reference uh, to William McIlvenny, 
is remarked that national identity is a bit like an old insurance policy. Uh, you know you've got one, you're not too sure where it is, and you're pretty vague about the small print. Um, when I read that, immediately I was reminded of something I actually happened to be reading at that moment. It was uh, a remark by George Santayana in his um, uh, book, uh, Soliloquies in England, written about 100 years ago. And uh, George Santayana said, when he was commenting on nationality, that it was something too radically intertwined with our moral essence to be changed honourably and too accidental to the free mind to be worth changing anyway. So it is who we are, but it's not all that we are, and probably it's not the most important thing that we are until, I suppose, it's challenged. And when you're in Northern Ireland, then you do realise how important that is, especially when it's challenged. But like uh, Edmund Burke's uh, observation and reflections on the revolution in France about rights, I think national identity occupies that sort of middle ground. The middle ground. And as Burke defined it, or described it, says, incapable of definition, but not impossible to be discerned. And I think this book, Understanding National Identity, discerns it brilliantly. Discerns it brilliantly and clearly. And the challenge... And what they do challenge, as Atsuko said, is one of the obvious explanations. They detect no intimate connection between politics and national identity. Yet in the case of Northern Ireland, uh, sorry, in the case of the United Kingdom, and Northern Ireland is one example of that, but but how do we explain then the connections which clearly do exist? And that was the task that uh, I was given. And to attempt to do that, what I've done here is to abstract from the book, what John has also presented. There's more there than what is actually written. And I think I've abstracted a little bit of the more. And I begin by differentiating two sets of concepts. I differentiate identity and allegiance. And then I distinguish solidarity and contract. And then I try to bring them together again as a form of elective affinity. And I think this procedure uh, helps us to frame, if not to fully explain, the puzzle of national identity or national identities in politics. So firstly, allegiance and identity. Well, allegiance, sorry, uh, allegiance may be to, well, the crown, or it may be to the nation, it may be to political institutions, it may be to values, it may be to all of these things. It can change over time. And older allegiances can continue. I'm always reminded of that uh, sort of wonderful short story by the Austrian novelist Joseph Roth, The Bust of the Emperor, which if you haven't read it, I would certainly recommend you, you reading. Identity, though, is concerned uh, mainly with, I think, self-understanding. Uh, what one feels oneself to be, individually or collectively. But allegiance isn't about that it involves authoritative political obligation. And I think this distinction is appropriate because, as you know, it's become fashionable to consider British as either invented or forged. But I think this confuses artifice, the artifice of statehood, with artificiality, meaning inauthentic, and contrasts it, for instance, with Scottishness or Englishness or Irishness which it considers as authentic. And I think that's a very highly questionable procedure. And I think what this book uh, shows, I think quite clearly, or clearly to me, 
is that that is a false step to take. But distinguishing um, allegiance and identity also provides for the possibility of their accommodation. Seventy years ago, um, Sir Ernest Barker uh, called being British at a time of war, indeed, in the 1941, he described uh, British as a distinctive mixture of unity and diversity, one in which he said individual nations maintain their identity, but each nation gets more by being included in the wider scope of the United Kingdom. Now, if you remember very recently, a few years ago in Scotland, during the independence referendum, Barker's understanding was reinvented as a slogan, better together. Nationalists, by contrast, believe that identity, for example, being Scottish, should be then intimately aligned with allegiance to Scottish institutions and to Scottish institutions exclusively. And I think that passes for most nationalism in general. Secondly, uh, contract and solidarity. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I think contract implies a wager on the possibility, at least, of independence. Uh, one which entails no obligations whatsoever on the component parts, for instance, of the United Kingdom. No obligations other than those that are entered into, either by arrangement, by agreement, or by treaty. And yet solidarity supposes, I think, something else. It supposes a, a common belonging and a sharing in that common good that Sir Ernest Barker mentioned. I think nationalists then in general stress explicitly or implicitly the value of contract. Now why did they stress implicitly or explicitly the value of contract? Well, because that implies a right of dissolution. And Alex Salmond uh, put it very well uh, recently when he said that um, independence would transform the Scots from being surly lodgers to being good neighbours. Unionists, of course, stress solidarity explicitly and implicitly because it identifies the value of the whole uh, with something good. And for them, the United Kingdom then uh, becomes what uh, Hegel once described, or how Hegel once described marriage, a contract that transcends contract. Or to apply that a very ambiguous uh, Scottish term, it implies a partnership for good. Not necessarily interminably, but a partnership for good. And in politics, one can see both principles at work. There are utilitarian calculations of self-interest by the UK's component territories, but often those calculations of self-interest assume obligations of British solidarity. So what of devolution? How has devolution changed that? Well, to use um, one of uh, Peter Hennessy's phrases, I think what it has done is to transform the inner wiring of how the system works into the external wiring. It becomes very visible. It becomes very visible now in those determinations about who gets what, where, when and how. And it's true that such bargaining between the devolved institutions of Westminster highlights contract over solidarity or grievance over mutuality. And if you're looking, I suppose, for one of the reasons for the emergence of the English question, it lies precisely there. 
So devolution then tests the relationship between allegiance and identity, between contract and solidarity, and raises the subversive political question, the subversive instrumental question, what is the United Kingdom for then? And the difficulty actually in answering that question was why we had Project Fear. That those who govern the country from Westminster found it very difficult ultimately to answer that question. They hadn't read the book. <laughs> However, uh, political research, as you're probably aware, uh, identifies something else, and that's called the devolution paradox, which means that while citizens in Scotland, Wales, and with some reservations in Northern Ireland can appreciate the value of policy diversity, uh, they also think that there should be a degree of commonality throughout uh, the United Kingdom in terms of, of, of standards of provision. And this isn't so much, I think, the Boris Johnson, let me have my cake and eat it thing, but a general, if not universal, feeling that difference should not necessarily mean disconnection or disadvantage. And then thirdly, elective affinity. And the term will be familiar to those students of Max Weber, elective suggesting agency and deliberate choice, affinity implying that individuals and national identities are related to one another by something other than mere choice. In short, in the United Kingdom at least, it suggests component national identities elect to stay in relationship with one another, but that this relationship exhibits affinities which give real meaning to the term British. And in that, I suppose, enigmatic phrase or Delphic phrase of Michael Oakeshott, formerly of this academic parish, what it suggests is a flow of sympathy. A flow of sympathy between those who inhabit this particular territory in Scotland, Wales, England and Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom. A flow of sympathy be between past, present and future. And it seems to capture that intersection between self-understanding and self-interest. So it implies real and active democratic choice for instance, Vernon Bogdaner believes that if you're looking for the meaning of British, it's representation in Westminster. But it also suggests something more than that. It suggests some sort of sympathy with a, a larger life, which is British. And you remember Gordon Brown tended to stress, above all, the family connections right across this island, which probably most of us here uh, can uh, fully understand. So in this way, choice somehow becomes paradoxically Natural, And it seemed to be quite interesting that during the referendum debate in 2014 that Scottish nationalists wanted to sort of break the elective side of that uh, relationship, but they wanted to continue the affinity side, that there should continue a social union, even if the political union uh, was gone. And that's where I think that this book is, is very good, because it illustrates that the simple distinction between unionist and nationalist, at least in Scotland, and probably in England and Wales, maybe not so much in, in Northern Ireland, isn't as clear-cut as you would imagine. To use um, the, the phrase of Colin Kidd, there's this vast and variegated middle ground uh, which links together unionism and nationalism, and indeed Colin Kidd believed that unionism in Scotland was indeed a form of, uh, form of nationalism. 
So then finally I was asked to uh, uh, consider uh, Brexit. Uh, what might one say about Brexit and how might that affect this? Well, what can one say? Um, except that Brexit looks very different, I think, when you're looking in from outside England than if you're looking outside uh, from England. And uh, the, the book um, makes that uh, point uh, very clearly about the difference of perspective. And so I think it looks very different from Scotland, never mind Northern Ireland, than it does looking out uh, from England. Which brings me to my, my final point. Yes, the referendum was UK-wide. Yes, the people have spoken. But the question here is, who are the people? Understandingly, national identity concludes to ask who we are and for what purposes remains one of the key questions of our time. I can't put it any better and it really is the question of the moment. Thank you. Now I want to, to invite two authors to this point, but I, I'm not quite sure which order you... I'm going to start. Okay. So uh, uh, is a Emeritus Professor of Social Research at the University of Edinburgh and a Fellow of the Royal Society of, uh, of Edinburgh as well. Uh, he has been publishing a lot in the, in the, in the field of social research as well as you know, all these works together with David. Okay. Um, we, we did discuss whether we should read it together in unison <laughs> <laughs> or possibly do alternate words, but it would have required a lot of rehearsal. Um, anyway, um, our thanks go to Arthur and to John for their thoughtful and generous and actually over-generous, very, very generous comments um, on understanding national identity. They raise a number of interesting points, and we can't address them all, so what we're going to do is select. We've tried to understand national identity for over 25 years, and we have a number of people to thank. The Leverhulme Trust gave us two major research grants to work with other social scientists, sociologists, social psychologists, political scientists, anthropologists, and we learned a lot from them. No discipline, in our view has a monopoly of wisdom. Even though, in the words of C. Wright Mills, every cobbler thinks leather is the only thing, and for better or worse, we are sociologists. Much of this collaborative work was published in our edited book, National Identity, Nationalism and Constitutional Change, 2009, and the present book, Understanding National Identity, represents the subsequent work, but above all, our own attempts to make sense of national identity as a whole. No single discipline has a monopoly of wisdom, and no single research method has one either. We used intensive interviews, long periods on people's sofas, ethnography, social surveys, not to be confused with opinion polls. We believe in triangulation, that several observations of a datum are much better than one, and furthermore, that there are benefits of cross-fertilization. Talking to people in a semi-structured way allowed us to distill out of such conversations ways of getting at national identity through survey questions, which we refined as we went. One obvious example of that, late in the day, was disaggregating identity scales into separate Scottish and British ones. Neither is it simply a matter of methods, but of research design. 
how to find a research locale to get at matters of national identity. To take an example, if national identities are implicit, latent for most people, it is revealing to look at those for whom national identity claims are problematic. Migrants, or people living in debatable lands, such as Berwick-upon-Tweed. We start here with what may seem a very minor matter of methodology. Uh, John Fox's comments about survey research, with which we disagreed to some extent. He says, what he just said, the data they present, both qualitative and quantitative, consist of ordinary people doing things with their national identities, generally talking and ticking boxes. And further, he says, the Cronenbeck offer puts surveys to good use to assess how people rank identities, how they understand their multiple identities and the quality and intensity of those different identities. Surveys thus provide detailed snapshots of scope, content and strength of national identities. Surveys are, however, less useful for assessing how people do their identities. Now, the aggregate identities, he says, culled from survey research, do not reveal identities in action, but rather identities momentarily frozen in time and space, detached from the everyday context they sometimes serve. They measure not what people do, but who people are. Now, we would not claim that surveys are the only valid form of data gathering, still less that they are intrinsically better than other methods. However, no boxes were ticked by the respondents in our surveys. We were not doing opinion polling, but survey research. Our questions about national identity and related issues were embedded in lengthy, face-to-face -face interviews conducted like conversations with respondents in their own homes conducted by highly skilled and experienced interviewers employed by the Scottish Social Attitudes Survey and the British Social Attitudes Survey. Respondents were allowed time to think, and responses are accordingly not quick snap judgments. We attempted to contextualise the questions, although there is admittedly a fundamental difference between answering questions with regard to a putative context described by an interviewer and actually being in a particular situation. We do partly reject the idea that surveys, ours anyway, detach the content of national identity from its context. They show us what people think about their national identities without telling us when or where they think about their national identities. Now, we partly reject that. The situations in which people were asked to accept or reject what we have conceptualised as claims are described to them, although we do not argue for a moment that this can substitute for being present when people do identity. John is right about it being a contrived research environment that underplays the crucial interaction between the qualitative and the quantitative in our work. We re-interviewed many respondents in intensive, more open-ended interviews, and responses told similar coherent stories and were consistent with the survey responses over time. Our colleagues, Susan Condon and Jackie Abel, social psychologists then at Lancaster, carried out a similar and connected programme of qualitative interviews with many parallels. We agree wholeheartedly that experimental techniques can yield fascinating insights and have worked closely with Steve Riker at St Andrews and Nick Hopkins at Dundee. But these experiments are no more embedded in natural contexts than surveys. Underlying these questions is something that John Fox 
wrote in a piece uh, to us and touched on now, the discussion of the unconscious and the inaccessible. It's kind of him to argue that our work offers a glimpse into this mostly unexplored realm of the unselfconscious. We think that we do offer a glimpse and that it is mostly unexplored, but that we only touch on this issue and that further research would be well worthwhile. Is in thinking that unselfconscious is not necessarily unconscious. There are problems with the idea of sociological studies of the unconscious. Some psychiatrists would doubtless be happy with the idea that a national identity would probably be an unappealing concept. To enter into a dispute over the theoretical basis of psychiatry is pushing it too far for us at least. Stepping away from national identity and thinking of social identities too cool. It seems to us that these are latent much of the time rather than manifest. Our age, gender, social class, etc. belong to our senses of self, although we may pay attention to them only in particular contexts, and we find the metaphor of playing the appropriate cards revealing. We accept that for some, women more than men, working class rather than middle class, such identities may have higher salience. We agree that we showed identity is both accessible and knowable when it is performed, and that was our aim. John also credits us with delivering more than we promised. Again, generous. Very, very encouraging. By the book, there's more in it than there. Yeah. Uh, by showing that identity is accessible and knowable when it's not performed, when it simply is. Now, here we're in two minds. We didn't set out in the early stages of the book to do this latter feat, but did we actually do it? The survey material is fairly sharply focused on performative identity, on accepting or rejecting claims by specified persons in specified circumstances. But in retrospect, we can see that some of the qualitative material is possibly related to the non-performed, and that is something worthy of further thought. Neither can relate to the unconscious, but the qualitative may well relate more to the unselfconscious than the survey does. Although often ignored, theoretical and conceptual issues underlie all methodological questions, and John Fox's contribution makes that clear. Coming to conclusions about the meaning in the context of national identity of the unselfconscious and the unconscious is a prerequisite to choosing appropriate methods or deciding they do not exist. Now, this is a good point to segue into Arthur Ovi's more theoretical comments while holding to our view that methods and theory are inextricably linked. We read Arthur's comments as examining the relationship between national and state identities, whether and in what context one can be Scottish, English, Welsh, Northern Irish and British. We've been criticised elsewhere for being allegedly being inconsistent in our use of these terms. This is a welcome opportunity for clarification, given that since we wrote the book, these matters have ostensibly become more salient. Recall our comment about research design. These islands are good places to study national identity because there is no simple relationship between formal citizenship, British for these purposes, and nationless, Scottish, English, etc. We're using nationless here to avoid terms like nationality or even national identity because if they so wish, people can think that being British, which we regard as a state identity, is their national identity. 
Proto-anthropologists have a useful distinction, borrowed from linguistics, between the etic, the analyst's concept, and the emic, the participant's one. Roughly put, the outsider's and the insider's views. People can choose how to relate being British and being Scottish, for example, in giving priority to one over the other or not. That is up to them. Our task as social scientists is to try and make sense of that, to see how consistent it is over time and what people might mean by it in certain contexts. And this veers close to politics. But as Arthur says, it is not derived from politics. In other words, people are not necessarily making a statement of political preference if they choose one over the other. And now you're going to have to put up with a different voice. Can I just continue on rather than break the flow? Because we, 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 we wrote this as a, as a unity, so uh, bear with me. Um, since we wrote the books, events, dear boy, um, seem to have conspired to make life more difficult for us. We do not want to be drawn too far into debates about Brexit and other recent political events because they were not the focus of our work. And further, we are empirical animals and there is as yet very limited data available on those topics. There are some passing comments in our book uh, which bear repetition. Uh, we wrote before the political events of 2014-2016 the following. Um, I wouldn't read this out if it didn't make sense in this context. But we said, a run of key political events and elections are likely to determine the long-term shape of the United Kingdom. The 2014 Scottish referendum on independence, the 2015 UK election, and the 2016 Scottish Parliament election, and, if the Conservative Party is re-elected, a promise of an in-out referendum on UK membership of the European Union. Those will need to be followed, we wrote, documented and analysed. As much as anything else, we said, the sequence of events will matter, the one influencing the other in ways we cannot predict. But, as you know, prediction is often a mugs game, and we were right to say that we couldn't predict outcomes and effects. Regarding recent events, one couldn't even make it up. We were not surprised by the results of the independence referendum, but thereafter, with the 2015 UK election, the success of the SNP, the result of the European referendum and the travails of the Labour Party, things have become more extraordinary. As Brexit means Brexit has become ever more meaningless, the courts have become embroiled in the political shambles and party consensus has become more fragile. So we are inclined to view developments through the frame of national identity. Well, we would, wouldn't we? Much of what Arthur Rocky has presented, it seems to us, relates to this. We read his distinctions between identity and allegiance and solidarity and contract as his way of getting at what you might call belonging vis-à-vis -vis formal citizenship, without implying that one rules out the other. Recent political changes make this distinction it seems to us even more salient. And we might come back to them, of course, in discussion, if you wish. We think it fruitful to explore in more detail the relationship between politics and national identity. Now, some of the available data is not astonishing, but having expected relationships confirmed is always comforting. To keep things brief, we shall not give you the relevant statistics, but 
if they are to, uh, because they are to hand if anyone would like them. There was a close association between voting yes and no in the Scottish referendum of 2014, voting and national identity. By the 2015 British uh, general election, the relationship was, if anything, even tighter uh, than ever if one takes support for independence as a proxy for actually voting for it. Over time, it seems that the relationship between politics and national identity seems to have tightened up in the context of this highly political sequence of events. We cannot be sure that this is cause and effect, of course, and a perhaps more interesting question is whether the relationship will loosen again uh, if, in three or five years, politics is no longer salient. Whether because Brexit is a thing of the past, or Scotland is independent, or quasi-independent, and so on. It is probably an error to think that heightened political awareness necessarily persists through time, although the protracted nature of Brexit may set these islands on a lengthy period of heightened political constitutional debate. The figures for the European referendum, the Brexit referendum, show the relevance of national identity and the differences between the nations as follows. The more Scottish you were, the more likely you were to vote to remain by a ratio of two to one. The more English you were, the more likely you were to vote to leave by around 70 to 30. The clear relationship, as nicely statistical as one could get. We cannot, of course, say that national identity determines how people voted, and indeed, we cannot tell whether it was more significant than other variables such as age, education, social class and so on because we do not have the access to the detailed survey data. To note that there is a closer, even tightening relationship between national identity and politics, however, is not to say that national identity is primarily about politics, a point we made and stand by in understanding national identity. Our insistence that labels such as Scottish and English and British cannot be taken at face value is crucial. What counts is what people read into these labels in different contexts, recognising that the meanings of the labels may differ. Claimed national identity, then, does not cause the vote. To borrow Arthur's Weberian analogy, there was an elective affinity between national identity and Brexit vote. Why it is that in England the more English people said they are, the more likely they were to vote for Brexit, in contrast to Scots in Scotland. It, that is surely a matter for further research. There is now, it seems to us, a research agenda which sees the English question, therefore, with new eyes. Doing research on national identity and nationalism for 25 years led us in the book to comment, quote, future gazing is always a risky business, but it is possible that in 10 years' time the important issues of national identity in these islands will be construed as largely being about England rather than Scotland or Wales and Northern Ireland for that matter, whereas at present they are deemed to be about the so-called Celtic fringe. We may well, we go on to say, have moved on from the view that national identity is not about England to one in which it is all about England. That's where the quote ends. 
Now, although we have no intention of doing it, being respectively 71 and 81 years of age, you can guess which is which, (laughs) generate old habits die hard. It's an ingrained habit to generate ideas and projects. Here are a few thoughts. The process whereby national identity labels, calling oneself, say, English or British, trigger particular responses in different contexts is not well understood. This may be because the necessary task of finding an appropriate research design would be challenging. National identity labels are relational. Being Scottish or English or whatever is a matter of the vis-a-vis with whom you compare yourself and who you say you are not. If people in England are shifting towards saying they are English rather than British, maybe, what at a deeper level is going on here? It could be, of course, that the substance of who they are remains the same, that they are simply using a different label for it. If, on the other hand, we are seeing the emergence of a new proto-English nationalism, among whom this is occurring, and for what purposes? And on the other side of the equation, what does British then mean in this context? Back in in 2006, we carried out research which could provide a baseline against which to examine this latter question, and the techniques could be applied to both. We found, using factor analysis, that English Brits, people who who in England said they were British, could be divided into three distinct clusters. One, empire loyalists, proud of monarchy, empire and tradition, and celebrating British achievements. Two, liberals, who valued multicultural and multinational diversity, and three, devolutionists, who saw the UK as a multinational state. Distinct three groups. For English Brits, then, in this context, British has no singular meaning. In the present context of Brexit, such a study, of course, we think, would be fascinating, relating as it does to the cries of, give us our country back. Whatever that means. In Scotland, on the other hand, Scottish Brits, people who say they are British but live in Scotland, were much more focused on the concept of union as partnership, with a more affective association with Britishness. This contrasted, in that work, with a more instrumental association between being English and being British in England. Now, we would dearly like to see one other piece of work before we are born off to somewhere place else, carried out in England and expanded in Scotland. Quite far on in our research, 2011-2012, we experimented with different kinds of national identity scales other than the so-called Moreno scale, five-point Likert scale. We were interested, why would you do that? In two questions. First, would using a seven-point quasi-Moreno scale rather than the five-point scale produce more finely grained and different but still reliable results? Broadly, the answer is no. However, we also tried using separate seven-point scales, one asking how strongly Scottish respondents were and one how strongly British respondents were. Now, this disaggregation allows someone to be both strongly British and strongly Scottish. As far as we know, the separate scales have not been tried in England but it is likely, guess what, that it would be uh, even more revealing than in Scotland. 
In Scotland, because such a large proportion claim a strong Scottish identity, meaningful variation occurs mainly on the British scale. About 4 in 10, roughly, people in Scotland are dualists, saying they are strongly Scottish and strongly British. And about 3 in 10 are nationalists, with a small n, saying they are strongly Scottish and weakly British. In England, who knows, we would expect a wider spread on both the English and British scale. Who knows that? A related issue relevant to Arthur Rocky's comments is the whole issue of the relationship between national identity and citizenship. In 2013, we quoted Vernon Bogdanor's comment that, and I quote, those choosing the separatist option in the 2014 referendum would be proclaiming that the two identities, Scottish and British, are incompatible. And he goes on, just as when Ireland became independent in 1921, it signified that the identity of being Irish was incompatible with a British identity. End of the quote. Now, it seems to us that this argument restricts being British to a matter of law. One is British de jure, and, or not at all. But, sociologically, British is not simply a matter of citizenship. People say they are British because they occupy the same archipelago. There is a common history. And there is the question of what independence might mean. The majority of people on the other island don't say they are British, which is perhaps too politically and historically fraught these days, but there are common links, traditions and dimensions which make it not unthinkable. What would be the case in an independent Scotland is anyone's guess. Which identities and so on. Hopefully, it would come to pass without violence, it would lack a religious element, albeit the European dimension would certainly be important, so residues of Britishness would probably exist, but take a quite different form. That's a supposition. Brexit, then, does have material consequences for the peoples of these islands. And to apply another Weberian concept, the unintended consequences of human action, no one can predict the outcomes. Parallels are attractive, as well as misleading. For example, the demise of Czechoslovakia did not, did not happen as a result of Czechs and Slovaks becoming more Czech and more Slovak, that was an outcome, not a cause, of political change. To say that national identity, then, does not determine political outcomes is not to deny its importance. It operates as a prism through which people view change and interpret this change accordingly. Finally, that is a finally, we are grateful to ASA for acknowledging our book, which has been so long in the making, and to John Fox and Arthur Rocky for their very helpful comments. If we have done something to reinstate the study of national identity into the research agenda, it will have been worthwhile after 25 years. In the light of recent events, the final sentence of our book, which Arthur was kind enough to quote, has added import. To ask who we are and for what purposes remains one of the key questions of our times. Thank you very much. Before I uh, open... <coughs>
to the floor. Um, would you, would John or, or Arthur want to respond no, quickly? No, no. Sure. Okay. Uh, can I just abuse my position as chair and ask first naughty question? It's been kind of bothering me a lot. It's something to do with a methodological, I think, assumption or under, uh, uh, groundwork. Do you think this book was possible because you were, you have been in Scotland? If you you had been in England, would this book be possible? Would the research have been possible? Yeah, no, absolutely not. Um, uh, as I said, um, we have uh, colleagues, uh, in particular Susan Conner uh, in England, who's done a lot of this stuff. And um, I can assure well, let's ask the audience. <laughs> Our experience suggests that uh, the people in England are just as willing to yank on about their national identity as people in Scotland. Um, and uh, some of our survey work was done in, in England by Bruce O'Frank, survey, and people responded equally easily. I think this idea that um, the English are somehow shy about revealing their national identity, it doesn't, doesn't seem to be borne out by the facts. Uh, they're, they're quite cheery about it, as far as we can make out. Um, have you any experience with this? No. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, but it, it, again, it's, it, if the question is asked, then yes, people can talk about it. The question is, when is it asked? So we ask these questions, and, and people do have answers for them. Um, uh, and you know, sometimes you have to probe a little bit, but you can, you can get people talking about that, and, and they, have, they have things to say about these sorts of things. I think the question that Atsuko is getting at is, is outside of these research contexts, when are those questions, when are those buttons being pushed, right? So. In Scotland, uh, maybe, I mean, you can answer the question with like, and maybe they're being pushed more often. Maybe the button that gets a Scottish national identity answer is being pushed more often than the button here because it's an English national identity answer. You mean just spontaneously? Just spontaneously, right, right. So it's the invisibility of the dominant majority, where you don't, you don't necessarily, what you talk about it, but you don't necessarily have to account for it, right? There's no reason to have to account for it in a way in which a minority might feel more compelled to come for her minority identity. Yes. The, the two things. One is, let's pull on to Susan Condor's comment. Susan writes very perspicaciously about this. And, and, and her argument, hmm, should she, I'm sure she put it much better. Um, so you are wrong. Yeah, well, she's done that's wrong. Um, <laughs> her, her argument is that people in England that like to treat that as a, what, have you, as a, as a much more private matter. Uh, they, they, they believe that um, if people in Scotland or wherever want to call themselves something, that's entirely up to them and, and so on. So the whole, there's an implicit quality to that. It doesn't mean to say they don't understand. One of the great myths is that the English are confused about being English and British. Well, they are. We've done so such work in England and in Scotland that we have to be absolutely certain about that. But what, the, the context in which people will use it uh, may well be may well be different, the awareness of being 85% of the, of, of the population, and so on. The other thing to say, of course, is that change of political context of matter, and that, for example, the whole devolution process, which is now 16, 17 years old, has permitted uh, people in England uh, to, to, to talk about national identity. Uh, right or wrongly, they just see that, you know, that, that that's all part of that. And that, of course, in, in part, but only in part, 
uh, that, that becomes politicised by, by, by the likes of UKIP and so on. So that's why we said in the slide in cheek, from a position of national entity being nothing to do with, with people in England, we may have been moving to one where it's all about everything in England and, and, and so on, and that's just something perhaps that's a crossfade to bear, uh, or some other people are coming after this so uh, in, in that regard. But back to Atsubo's point, it's the, it's the problematic nature of identity or anything else for that matter which makes it easier to study. Uh, the sense in which what we have loosely called the rough rule of thumb, nation and state, national identity, state identity, citizenship, or whatever it would be, ethically, not ethically, um, means that you are aware of it. It's part of the air we breathe, it's part of the ether, and so on. And of course, that's a spread to England and to Wales and to Northern Ireland, always been in Northern Ireland, eh, eh, as I know it's better than anyway. eh, And so on. That whole debate eh, about, about who we are is much easier to hold to. We are, if you are, hmm, this is not a good day to ask to say this, but if you are to ask Amer I try this with American students, what is your citizenship? American, and they say, and I say, what is your national identity? And they say, American. You know, you've asked us that. Where is it problematic as it is in these islands? There is a there is an analytical purchase that, that is very useful to the research. Never I ask an American what they're Susan Conker's excellent work. Uh, if anybody's interested, uh, uh, should read. It always struck me that the English attitude in the political context to devolution was a mixture generally of complacency. Yeah, well, that's the sort of thing that the Scots, the Irish, and the Welsh might want but also complacent. Well, if that's what they want to do, you know, fair play to them. You know, we, we support that and think that's a, a very good thing. And that filtered in, of course, into politics, where the West Lothian question uh, was a real, real can of worms. As you know, Derry Irvine, or the Labour Party's answer to it was, well, don't answer it. Or, sorry, don't, don't even ask the question. You know, don't even ask that question. Whereas the, I think the, the conservative view was, yeah, you can ask the question, but we don't really think we should come up with an answer either. So you have, remember Ken Clark, when the Conservative Party were in, in uh, opposition, said, really what we need to do about the English question is a tweak and a twiddle here, but look, let's not stoke uh, any sort of uh, nationalism which will come back to uh, slap us. Uh, in, in face. And you might say that the English question then in terms of identity and in terms of politics and where those two things uh, engage has been a product of, of tinkering. And the English focus on English laws is a form of tinkering. But the image that always comes to my mind uh, is uh, one that's uh, been well used in English literary history, English English philosophy as well, is Sir John Cutler's stockings. Now, if anybody knows the story of Sir John Cutler's stockings, is that Sir John Cutler was a very mean uh, member of the, uh, the City of London, and uh, his stockings were entirely silk, but he would always have them darned by his uh, housemaid in wool, until there came a point where Sir John Cutler's stockings were no longer silk at all, Mm -hmm. They were entirely wool. Mm -hmm. 
you suddenly wake up in a different political context. And it may be that in that image of Sir John Cutler's stockings, for many people, you know, tinkering or mending or darning the political system is no longer sufficient. Such that on both the conservative side, also on the Labour side, there are arguments for taking the English question much more seriously. Maybe on the Labour side because Scotland's gone, and the Conservatives, Scotland's gone, the big battle to win power in Westminster is in England. Such that you now have the Constitutional Reform Group, which is an all party group, <coughs> Lord Salisbury, the most profound unionist there has, who used to be the patron of the Friends of the Union, which is a Northern Irish uh, uh, arrangement to keep Northern Ireland in Lord Salisbury, Peter Hayne, and I'm trying to think, uh, um, uh, the, the Liberal Democrat, is, uh, whose name is Mingus Campbell, are arguing for a new federal um, answer to the question of identity and politics in the UK, <coughs> and that will involve an English parliament. That was a fringe matter. <coughs> 10, 15 years ago. I mean, I remember going to a meeting, the, if I may, just to the annual general meeting of the campaign for the English Parliament, which was held in, um, in Red Lion Square Combining House. And I walked in, and there, were, there was only a small room, and there was a group of people standing around drinking tea, and I said, campaign for an English Parliament. And they said, no, we're the London Haiku Society. <laughs> which, is a, which is a wonderful English thing, because um, in Conway House, it said, the home of lost causes. And I was, when I was speaking to the campaign for an English parliament, there was only about half a dozen people there. It was what was once said by um, um, uh, Hatchley, um, Lord Hatchley, about Scottish nationalism. The Scottish nationalism used to be some old woman handing out leaflets in Soppy Hall Street on a wet and windy Saturday evening. And I look at it. Mm -hmm. The campaign for an English parliament, the idea of an English parliament, so into the mainstream. <coughs> Remarkable how things changed in the course of the 10 years. Yes, well, I enjoyed your presentations, and uh, I think the book is an extremely elegant and important study, um, and, and so that's uh, admirable work. Uh, one of the interesting things that you point out in the early pages is the extent to which nationalism, the area of nationalism, really hasn't dealt properly with national identity. You call it the kind of orphan child of nationalist studies. But then you don't really say what the relationship between national identity and nationalism is. And uh, uh, so, to what extent is national, nationality, as conception of nationality and national identity change in areas, areas of hot nationalism? Um, now, what I have in mind, I mean, uh, Arthur Rocky suggests perhaps, is it to do with political allegiance? In other words, there's some kind of um, sense of political obligation as a result of having a specific national identity. So that's, that's the nationalist aspect. But there are other cultural nationalists too at various times who are not focused on 
statehood as such, but on the recon moral reconstruction of society. In other words, in Ireland, for example, in the 19th century, you get groups saying, well, you're not really Irish unless you speak Irish, you wear Irish dress, you, uh, you respect particular aspects of Irish history, even Irish literature has to be written in a certain way. And to some extent, they're differentiating themselves not just against the English, but other Irish people who they feel they are insufficiently Irish. So that's a, that's a rather different concept of national identity, which is occurring in the form of a heightened nationalism. So uh, to what extent then is your analysis uh, based on a, a society where the national identity is much more banal, much more unselfconscious? Um, the second point uh, too is to, to what extent can you generalize from this study? Because your, your title is Understanding National Identity mm -hmm. and it's an extremely uh, incisive analysis of Scotland, but how far does it carry outside uh, that? I mean, for example, you say towards the end of the book, uh, it makes no sense to, uh, to uh, ask how does national identity relate to uh, uh, religion or, or class and so forth to, to can try and construct a hierarchy because people have multiple identities and it changes according to context, which is no doubt very true. Uh, for many societies, but for other societies, uh, uh, the sense of claiming a national identity is a, a very divisive act. For example, in religious societies in the 20th century Egypt, if you're saying I'm a member of the Egyptian nation, that could be seen as profoundly provocative. Or in the context of a kind of working, late, uh, working class movement in the late 19th century, committed to proletarian internationalism. Um, again, that could be seen uh, as. Uh, and here's one talking about organized movement, uh, organized movement, or, or structured <coughs> groups of individuals, and with uh, particular institutions trying to uh, command, as it were, uh, competing loyalties amongst <coughs> them. Whereas your analysis is very much focused on individuals and individual interactions. So, to what extent then can you uh, use this as a model for studying? Other contexts. Yes, well, thank you, John. There's a there's a number of really so we could be here all night <laughs> looking at that. Let me just answer with the, the, the national identity nationalism issue, which is a very interesting kind of um, detach the two the two things. Uh, it seems to us, and you say, that people like you and me who have taught nationalism for donkey's years, that nationalism by and large uh, has ignored nationality. I mean, yes, the, the, the late it is a remarkable thing. Our national entity is kind of falls below the wire uh, in studies of, of, of nationalism with a capital N or a, or, or a small N. And I think that's just one that's just one statement. I think one can accept that or not. I think it's acceptable. Um, uh, the, the book is about national identity. It, it, you know, that's what it's about. And, and in a sense, it's a deck feeling to say, well, it, you know, it's not. Because, because the orthodoxy is the right book of nationalism, oh, and by the way, I mentioned national identity, uh, to imply uh, and to infer that it's a deeply political thing and therefore it gets kind of stitched in. And no, back, we're back to where we started. There's something called national identity, nationalism, and it creates national identity, and before we know it, uh, we're back to where we started. So, so that's, that's, that's one thing to say. The second thing to say is, in the context of what has been written on national identity, in the context of nationalism studies, is that it is seen as a kind of top-down thing. 
Uh, I mean, I have great, huge respect for, for Anthony Smith and his book on national identity, but it's a top-down thing. It, it is where it comes from. It's, it's, it's the cultural, historical roots of it. Uh, and, and we have been, you know, we've done the usual academic thing and take out really nice quotes to, 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 um, uh, uh, to put into verse, as it were. But, but, but the point is that it's, it's not like that. The appeal of Mick Billings, but now nationalism, to us and to John's work and other people's work is it's from below. That is, it isn't some kind of brainwashing uh, thing that is imposed on people and you will always believe this and dance to the same tune or whatever metaphor you want to use, but it is something that an anthropologist does, is worked out by people. They have a sense of it. Uh, and they work it through and they take it down uh, and, and they connect it into the bigger picture and the smaller picture and they do it horizontally and laterally, and that is the focus. And if in this small book of 200 pages we have managed to say that, we think that we think that's enough. And it's up to other folk like you uh, yeah. here on a, on, a, on a wet night in London uh, to, 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 to make it true. Uh, that's our test. We, it, it is true of but it is fundamentally an individual individual characteristic, of course, so what we mean by that sociologically, but it is not the conventionalism is a top-down thing, which that's why people confuse with citizenship, that's why it's imposed, that's why people go, well, no. It, 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 people manoeuvre, manipulate, whatever metaphor you want to use for themselves. Uh, you know, and, and that is the interesting thing about it. And above all, the complexities and confusions and conundrums uh, of, of national identity are really, really worth studying. Uh, if you drive across the English Scottish border, within a mile you come to a place called Conundrum. That says it all. Thanks to the Scottish side of the border, can you really hear the English side of the border? It's probably better off the English side of the border. You do ask one very difficult question, my dear. I think, I'll counter yeah. my colleague's vigorous defence for an instant by saying, look, when you say, if you, you didn't say it quite like this, but you meant, can you generalise from this? Yes, I and the answer so. is, of course, it depends what you're trying <coughs> to do. We do have a problem in, in social science, which is, you know, it isn't nuclear physics, and there really are problems about generalising cross contexts and cross situations. I think you say certain things. Our argument that national identity is not impersonal above but comes from below. I would be inclined to say that will um, trust me up. I think that's always going to be the case. But if somebody wants to go out and find an example where it isn't, great, that will take us a lot further. But you know, I think that would be a good point to start. Secondly, um, I think that the way we went about looking at this the way we conceptualise these things as being claims to national identity, I think these could be and can be as a technique, as an approach, as a theory is too strong, as a conceptual approach, could be tried anywhere. And I'm sorry, but it really is for somebody else to do it. <laughs> uh, but as, an as a, a sense of what national identity is about, and an example, a series of examples, of the ways in which you can actually go about looking at that, I think we're on solid ground. But in terms of, uh, you know, what national identity is like in um, Nigeria, no, I'm sorry, you'll need to find a Nigerianist who to go out and have a go. Well, there's, there's a question about national identity, about the difficulty of reading 
any distinctive meaning into it. Post-Brexit in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. Wonderful cartoon. The living room of a member of the Orange Order with his sash and regalia and his wife with a couple of passports. And she says, great news, Billy. Our Irish passports have arrived <laughs> just in time for the marching season. I'll leave that one open. I'm not going to it. Um, what, what does that mean? What meaning do you, do you take from that cartoon? Uh, so, um, in, I'm just kind of conscious of time. Uh, and I, I, at least I have three more questions uh, working. Uh, is it okay if we kind of extend a little bit because we're supposed to finish at uh, 7.30 but I suppose on this side it is quite okay to extend a little bit but uh, uh, in, uh, on the part of the audience if you have to go, you have to go I suppose. Uh, so I've got Asina, Eric, A-W-A-K. So Asina, would you like to start? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I very much enjoyed uh, the presentations, and uh, I haven't read the book yet, but uh, I'm planning to read it. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to ask, uh, from this point of view that I have given you, <coughs> and this is the point from which I'm looking at, uh, I'm, I'm posing these questions. Uh, first of all, uh, you didn't talk enough about Wales, and in the presentations <coughs> we had uh, the this account of radicalized identities in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, in England, but the Welsh are an interesting case of being Brexiters and yes. having a low sense of, not a heightened sense, or not radicalized sense of national identity. So that's one question. And another question is, um, uh, you, you talked about uh, elective affinities, uh, which is, um, very inconsequent. But uh, with Max Weber, his aim was to pin down the elected affinities. Elected uh, affinities not about sympathy, generalized mysterious sympathy. Uh, it is a scientific concept that goes back to Goethe, who takes it from um, the, the, the natural sciences, the magnetism of magnetic forces. So I didn't hear much about it. This magnetic what, and this identification, these points of contact, which give rise to sympathy between uh, the Scots uh, uh, and uh, the Scottish and the Central British, because the English make them feel British, and that creates this, well, this Oxfordian uh, warm pool uh, that we all bathe in. So I would like to hear if you could more about this. What are these elective activities? What are the ones of contact uh, which uh, make uh, create the sympathy of British? Yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah. 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 All right. Great. Elective affinity, I'm passing about. Arthur brought that in. Yeah, I would absolutely share your view about elective affinity as a, as a revealing, because you're quite right. It came out of 18th century German chemistry, uh, and you put it very well. Um, in other words, what Weber was saying with regard to the spirit of, of capitalism and, 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 uh, and Protestantism, the spirit of capitalism uh, and the Protestant ethic, was that there was an association, an association 
and an affinity, an electro affinity, which happened to be. It was almost as if, and I hate to use this word, uh, he'll, he'll shout at me, it was almost unconscious uh, in, in that regard. It was, it was an affinity uh, um, rather than a true. So, so uh, Arthur's to blame for, for imposing an electro affinity uh, in the discussion, uh, but being good with variants, we thought we should uh, at least. Uh, raise, raise, raise a second one about the unintended consequences of human action. Um, but electrophinity is purely an associational uh, uh, thing. The issue of whales, well, you can't do everything. Sorry, this sounds pathetic. Uh, but whales are so different. I mean, what it is. Whales do. Uh, look, the language is vital. Uh, the language is absolutely central to that. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't define whales. It doesn't capture whales. It's not the criterion of being whales. But it is so sufficiently different. Hey, there's there's an area that needs to be studied probably uh, in, 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 in Wales vis-a-vis, particularly Brexit. Hey, I just to throw a data, uh, a bit of data in here. If you if you look at I mentioned we mentioned this, uh, on the Brexit thing, the more English you are, the more likely you are to vote for Brexit. And the more Scottish you are, the more likely you are to vote for Leave across 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 the thing. In Wales, it makes no difference. Uh, the more Welsh you are, the more likely they vote. Well, you, you are you're equally likely to vote to leave if you say you're Welsh and not British, as you are British and not Welsh, right across the board. Uh, so something very interesting is going on in Wales, and it's up to Welsh folks to do it properly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid we couldn't afford it. I'm sorry, you're, you're no, not terribly expensive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, there's a limited amount of money, so you'd love to do something in Wales, but couldn't be. Thank you. Um, I have, I, maybe you can just elaborate. I confess I didn't read the book. Um, so um, maybe you did speak of it, but I was quite struck when John Hobbes gave you that definition of national identity as something doing, that it's a practice. But then all I've really heard of in the conversation is um, something about consciousness. I, I gather that you did surveys, you did interviews, that I heard very much about doing. And I wonder if you did talk about doing. I'm thinking doing here. Um, for example, in the U.S., there's lots of work on whiteness. They say, where do you see whiteness? You see it in white flight within cities. You see ethnicity in the way that people intermarry or not. You see the behaviors, where they go, where they associate, the kind of sports they do, the culture they do. I thought that's what I'd be hearing about, but in fact, I've heard it seemed to be a more old-fashioned study of people's consciousness, which would seem like the definition you were opposed to. Um, another question is related to process. I'm wondering where did process play a role if it did it all in the book? And I'm particularly really wondering about, I hear that you had, you found different conceptions of Englishness, you probably found different conceptions of Scottishness, but I'm really curious about, we're still talking about a group within a geographic boundary called England and a geographic boundary called Scotland, are we not? No. And I'm wondering about process, when does a group not whether we're calling ourselves British, and now suddenly, okay, in the vampires, a few decades later, we're calling ourselves English, but rather, when does different groups start to see themselves as one, or when they split and don't see them as self as one press after civil war or something, and when that matters? That seems like a, a kind of deeper, more important question than when the same group within the same geographic boundary is just calling itself something. So one related to practice and one related to process. So you really will need to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> you really will need to read the book. Because one of the things we did uh, in Scotland and in England was to look at different kinds of communities. We also looked at migrants, that is people born in Scotland living in England, 
people who are born in England, born in Scotland, uh, who are, in methodological terms, really interesting groups of people. So how do they, and of course, depending on how long they have lived in the other society, how do they, how do they manage that? And that's very much more technology. Yes. I mean, yes. There, there, there are two things here. There's another study which is reported in the other book which was mentioned, uh, written with a number of other people. And there's a lot of stuff about migrants, as Dave says in that book. Well, that's touched on. Um, it really is difficult. I, I'm going to make a more positive suggestion. Um, it, you know, you always have interesting things to say. Uh, what I suggest is you read the book and then come back to us and tell us if we do answer it, because otherwise we're going to be here all night. Um, because the book is about, well, I think it's, come on, you guys disagree. It is about doing identity. That's what it's about. Um, it asks people how they would respond in certain situations to claims made by certain people in the service. In other words, if uh, you know somebody in a certain situation claims that they are a Scot, then what? How is that claim received by other people around them, and on what criteria, and how do they modify it, and so on? So the book is really about doing it. There's also qualitative stuff. About There's also an ethnography and delicate tree. It's not. It's not as good on doing as stuff that could be done in very limited research of car by, say, a solidly anthropological technique. And some of that has been done a little bit anyway. But in terms of saying something more general, as we try to do, that's, that just doesn't begin to take off. You learn a hell of a lot about Wasi or Shetland or whatever, but you don't learn a lot about the whole situation. But by all means, read book and then come and tell us we're wrong. You always Affinity with sporting practices of, uh, of a, a different 
country or any other country within the United Kingdom, but I wouldn't put on an England shirt and <laughs> come on the lattice, it would be totally inconceivable. Um, do you know any the question I have, I suppose, is to uh, David and Frank, and I really enjoyed the book, and I, and I definitely agree with this from below type of perspective that John and yourself are engaged in. I kind of want to even push on that a little more to say, well, could we lift up the hood under the English and the Scottish and, and, and look at the content of what's in people's hands? You know, someone who is in Northern Ireland and sees the Unionist flag, there are certain things in their head when they think of the Britishness. Which might involve an orange sash, might passport. Right, but, but and somebody in Scotland or somebody in England would have a different image. Someone who's ethnic minority would be someone who is many generations, you know, rural, white British. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, do you think you know, how do you think there are many different versions of let us say Scottishness, an Edinburgh Scottishness, a Highland of Lowland? And sort of Anthony Cohen's personal nationalism, if you feel yeah, that happy. Because I think that's the one thing I was, you know, it's such a rich book, I don't want to sort of sit here and say this was busy. But the one thing I was hoping kind of a bit for is to say, what are the, how does Scottishness vary from class to class, ethnicity to ethnicity, place to place, well, uh, in terms of the symbolic content? I mean, do you have any research on that? Well, two, two things. One is Anthony has said, that there's a Glasgow way, an Edinburgh way, a Highland way, whatever we blah blah blah. But in his anthropological view, they don't need to be seen. There is a kind of shared common element. Now, it does raise another aspect of, well, we wouldn't call it discourse, but the, 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 the spoken and written performance performances of politicians. Steve Reicher and, and Nick Hopkins wrote a fantastic book called Self and Nation. Self and Nation. We recommend it to you. Um, it, 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 it captures uh, that kind of approach that, 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 that we've been building the way forward. Um, so we're not, you know, in a sense we're not the only folk that have done this kind of thing, but we've done it, as Frank says, in a previous book with, 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 with other people, and we're still very much, much open to that. Um, the issue is, as far as we can gather, and we've spent a lot of time on people's sofas and people have talked to us, and here's a little anecdote from Susan Condon, who, who talked to people in England, eh, Scots in England, for example, as well as English in England, um, and compared the two, she says, you know, you go and talk to these people born in Scotland, they've lived there for 20, 30 years, but now, and it's almost like a piss about and off they go, right? And you get these accounts, these narratives, these stories, these, these, then you think, my goodness me, here we are, we don't have to say anything. Um, in, in contrast with other people who are much more involved in other words, there are practiced, there are there are practiced performances that, that people believe them. It's not like they, you know, just kind of oh, I'll just I'll just tell them this. I like practice and kill stuff. 